Grab your Bible. We're going to be in Titus. You're happy to know this is our last week. Some of you have been wondering when it's coming. We're going to hit the end. We've been tracking through, if this is your first time here, or the first time in a long time, we've been tracking through the book of Titus, and we are finally to the end. And uh, we're going to look at the last few verses here. You know, I think about the Apostle Paul who wrote, obviously, this book to Titus and to the church, this new church, much like our, our own. Uh, he wrote this, this letter to Crete, to these, to these fledgling new believers and new churches, telling them how, how to establish themselves. Really, uh, I think about Paul. Paul was given this commission, if you will. He was given this calling to go and spread this news, this news that, that remember, wasn't extremely popular at the time. I mean, if you were to list uh, in Paul's day, if, if you were to have been asked to list all the major religions, Christianity wouldn't have been one of them. At best, it was an offshoot of Judaism uh, about this little, uh, this little um, carpenter's son who died on a cross who a handful of people are beginning to say is the Messiah. But that was really it. It wasn't, it wasn't a popular message, but Paul was given... He was given the order by God himself to go and take this, not just to the Jews, but take it to the Gentiles, which means the rest of the world. What a huge, enormous task that was. And you know that next to Jesus, Paul was uh, probably the top example of men to be able to do that. But you've got to remember, in Paul's day, he didn't have all the glitz. He didn't have all the perks. He didn't have all the benefits that we have. Listen to this. Remember... Paul had no mass media. He couldn't broadcast the message by radio or TV or tapes or CDs. He didn't have the printing press, much less the Internet. He didn't even have a post office to send out bulk mailings. Furthermore, there was no rapid transportation system. He couldn't drive on modern highways or take a train or a jet from city to city to spread the word. He had to walk or even take a boat, a slow boat, with paddles. He couldn't pick up the phone, push a few buttons, and talk with his key workers in another city. He communicated with them by hand-carried letters that took weeks or sometimes months to deliver. He didn't have Nextel. He didn't have any iPhone. He didn't have email. He couldn't text you. It was slow. Okay, Spreading the word in Paul's day was a great, great challenge. But yet, we know, looking back, he accomplished, he accomplished a great amount of spreading that word. Somebody's beating the kid back there. If he's yours, sorry. Just kidding. Um, hope it's not mine, Rusty. See, see who that is. Probably one of mine. Probably mine. Uh, sorry. Small building. Where was I? Paul, uh, he was up to the task, a formidable task that was. How did he do it? That, that's, where I, that's where I'm going with this. How did, how did Paul do this without all the benefits that we have? How did, how, did he, how did he accomplish this? I think our text today gives us a glimpse, a small glimpse into how he accomplished such a formidable task. All right? Let me tell you what this passage is about. Former NBA player A.C. Green, who is, by the way, a believer, uh, one of my favorite players while he played, mostly uh, not because of his great talent, but because of his humble spirit. Even before you knew this guy was a believer, you knew there was something different about him, the way he carried himself, what he said, what he didn't say. Okay, uh, He was a great player, a Hall of Famer, but he was a humble man. 
And that's because he was a believer. He wrote this. Men often talk about their glory years in high school. At Benson High School in Portland, Oregon, I was a sports-minded, egotistical maniac. I was the tallest guy on the team and could have broken scoring records. But Coach Gray wouldn't let me. Even with the brakes on, twice that year I scored 39 points. And in the season finale against Wilson, I scored 40. I averaged 27 points per game. As a team, we scored more than 100 points in seven games and averaged over 90. I was voted the Oregon 1991 All-Metro Player of the Year and joined the All-Metro team that year. Coach Gray wouldn't allow me to be the hot shot scorer because he was more interested in the final stat, the number one place. He knew the only way we could reach that championship level was for us to become team players. In basketball and in life, A.C. Green writes, everyone starts out with a what's-in-it-for-me attitude. Children, he says, are selfish. Humans in general are selfish. That natural selfishness has to be broken to be a winner. In life, in humanity, certainly in the church. You have to realize you can't do it all by yourself. You need the team. Coach Gray made me pass the ball and play unselfishly. Regardless of the individual stats, we, the team, reached the top. We went all the way. Look at the end of Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 12. This is uh, the end of the book. It is some personal matters that we might, we might commonly dismiss as we're reading through the letters of the New Testament. The beginning, you know, it's a little bit of fluff of, hey, this is Paul, I'm so-and-so, and I'm writing to so-and-so. And we kind of we we gloss over that sometimes, and then we get to the end, and there's some more greetings and salutations, and sometimes we just gloss over that. We tend to think that the meat is in the middle. I think there's some good stuff for us here at the end by way of speaking of a team that is the church, the design of the church. Titus 3, verse 12, Paul says this. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, he's speaking to Titus, who is the man on the scene on the island of Crete, the guy in charge for the time being. He's there to set up elders. He's there to train the body. He's there to tell them what they should be about, things they shouldn't be involved in in the community, etc. When I, Paul, send Artemis or Tychicus to you, Titus, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Incidentally, Paul never makes it to this rendezvous. He had plans, though. Second Timothy says that his life ended otherwise. 13. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul was not a one-man show. Okay? I'll make it obvious where we're going here. Paul was not a one-man show. His greetings and his salutations often allude to the fact that he was not alone. He is a spiritual stud to be sure. We admire him next to Jesus as the guy who is most to be admired in Scripture. But he was not alone, and he was not a lone ranger. And he, more than anyone, knew this well. He always worked with and through a team of people who were committed to ministry. 
These verses show that Paul's team, not the entire team, but a few that are mentioned here, are very much needed. All right, we're going to go through the roster of those who are listed. By name and in generality, we're going to go through these people. I want to tell you who they are, and then in the end, we're going to wrap up with some principles that we can draw from this for our new church. Things that help us to join arms, lock together, and accomplish that which is a formidable task for us, okay? Reaching not just Jefferson, but going beyond our immediate area, taking this good news to the world. Let's start with the first guy, Titus. We've talked a lot about Titus throughout this series. Uh, you've already met him in this book. He was Paul's faithful delegate, sent to Crete to work with a difficult group of people. That's basically his job. He was given a hard task in a hard place. He was sent to San Francisco to start a church, okay? Where people were at odds with his message, to say, to say the least. He was a Gentile, probably in his late 30s, all right? Just so you get a picture of Titus. He passes off the pages of Scripture in 2 Timothy. He was sent to uh, Dalmatia, modern Albania, and the Balkan states. He was a solid and faithful man of God. That's what we know about Titus. And he was the man currently on the scene that Paul uses in Crete. Number two, Artemis is also mentioned here in this salutation. I always think of Artemis Gordon. Remember that old show? What's the name of that show? What was it? Wild Wild West? Yeah. Artemis Gordon was the partner. He was the sidekick. He didn't always get the credit, but he was, he was known. He was very helpful. That's what I always think of. I wonder if that's where they got Artemis from. Artemis here. This is the only reference to this man. What we see here in this brief salutation is all we know about him in all of Scripture. But we can infer some things. From his name, we can guess that he was a Gentile. From the fact that Paul considered him a worthy replacement for Titus... We can surmise that he was a competent and knowledgeable, faithful, mature man of God. If Paul ended up sending Tychicus to Ephesus and Titus met Paul in Nicopolis, then headed north to Dalmatia, then Artemis probably is the guy who replaces Titus in Crete. So Paul sends for Titus. He needs to spend some more time with him. He needs to do ongoing leadership training with Titus. He asks for him to come back. Most likely, Artemis is the guy who replaces him. It's significant that Paul had such a relatively unknown yet qualified man at his disposal. And most likely, he's not the only guy. Artemis is listed, but Paul may have had dozens of Artemises. Paul may have had dozens of men that he had raised up who were of the right character, who were godly enough that he could have sent them to replace a guy like Titus, who we know was worthy of his calling. All right, look at the next guy, Tychicus. Tychicus we know more about. He was another faithful Gentile believer, a native of Asia. He traveled with Paul along with some other men at, at the close of Paul's third missionary journey. Later, he was with Paul during the first Roman imprisonment. And so you've got to believe this guy was learning some things from the Apostle Paul. Paul sent the letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians with Tychicus. You remember a few months back we went through Colossians? You saw this name before that he brought the letters. Paul sent, uh, sent these letters, and he also told the churches about Paul's circumstances, his imprisonment, etc. Later, Paul sent him to Ephesus to relieve Timothy, so he was a replacement for Timothy, so that perhaps Timothy could join Paul in Rome before his execution. 
Paul calls Tychicus our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. He was a valuable member of the team. All right? So it's not just some random name mentioned here. He was a valuable member of Paul's team. And Paul saw the value in all these people. Number four mentions a guy named Zenus. Zenus is said to be a lawyer. This is the only reference to Zenus in the Bible. Again, like Artemis, this is all we know about him. His Greek name may mean that he was a Gentile lawyer. But the fact that he was poor enough for Paul to ask Titus to help supply his needs may mean that he wasn't a Gentile lawyer as we think of a lawyer today, but he may have been uh, a man of the law, a man of the Mosaic law. And that may just be the case. At any rate, he'd set aside his career long enough to accompany Apollos on the trip. So he was valued. The two men probably carried the epistle of Titus to Crete, in fact. Another valued member of the team. Jack's not in here. Jack's our lawyer in the church. I was going to pick on him. Zenus, incidentally, the word means literally strange. Right? Strange. I was going to encourage him, though, that we at least know one lawyer in heaven right here. Here's your, here's your cross-reference. At least one All right, number five, Apollos. You know more about Apollos. He was a Jew from Alexandria in northern Egypt, an eloquent orator, mighty in the scriptures, a fervent man in spirit, Acts 18 tells us. He came to Ephesus where Paul's teammates, Priscilla and Aquila, you remember them? Other of Paul's teammates, not mentioned directly here, but Apollos had a relation with them. They took him aside and taught him the way of God more accurately, scripture says. The fact that he listened to Priscilla and Aquila shows that he had a humble and teachable heart. Later, he had a powerful ministry in Corinth. Apollos, you know him, you know him well. He's mentioned in Corinthians. Then Paul mentions this uh, group of people, not specifically, but he mentions this group of people, and he says, our people. This refers to the Christians there in Crete, those who surrounded Titus, all believers, even those who go unnamed, even those from obscure villages in Crete, were in Paul's mind a part of the team. They were to learn and take the lead in good deeds. It's the same phrase used in Titus 3, verse 8. And so Paul recognizes, even if not specifically by name, he recognizes that there's a team of people there around Titus himself. Number seven, he recognizes there's a team of people around himself as well. He says, all with me. We don't know where Paul was when he wrote this. He may have been in Macedonia or Achaia, but we know that he was not alone. And that's the important point here. We know that he was not alone. Again, he wasn't a lone ranger. He wasn't out, he wasn't out conquering the world, pushing back the darkness by himself. He, he had a team. But we know, besides Zenos and Apollos, there was a church where Paul was staying, and he fellowshiped with these saints. He was not a lone ranger. All right, he mentions one more category of people here, and then we'll go on to our principles that we draw from this passage. He mentions those who love us in the faith. These were Paul's friends and fellow servants and saints in Crete. There may be a subtle allusion here even to those who did not love Paul in the faith. The false teachers who needed to be silenced that are referenced earlier in the letter. The reason we love one another is because we share a common faith in the Lord Jesus. And Paul recognizes this. That because we have this common faith, that puts us automatically on the same team. And he recognizes and he mentions these people here not not as an aside, but because he realizes that they are important. And he realizes that mentioning them to Titus and the rest of the church would, by way, communicate and encourage 
the body at large. Um, when we talk about the church being a team, it always comes up from time to time, and, and I always feel like uh, this is one of those things that you have to remind the church of from time to time. But there's this, there's this mentality in the body of Christ that the guys who stand up here, the guys who do this, the guys who work in the offices back there, that, that the ministry, the ministry, the profession of the ministry, the church stuff, is the job of the professional guys. It's the job of the professionals that they are to carry out the business of expanding the kingdom, that they are to carry out all the business of expanding the kingdom. That's their job. And we know, we know, right? It doesn't always play out that we know it, but somewhere deep down we understand that that's, that's not correct. That's not how the Bible portrays it. Every Christian is saved to serve Jesus Christ. Ministry should be the overflow of your walk with Christ. It may take on a structured form, such as teaching Sunday school, playing on the worship team, helping with church socials, leading a discipleship group, a Bible study, whatever, a life group. You may have a significant role like that. Or it may even mean inviting new people at church over for a meal and encouraging them in their walk. But there should be... No such thing as what we might call here, as we use the analogy of a team, there should be no such thing as bench warmer Christians. If you're saved, you're called to the ministry of God. You are on God's team automatically. It's up to you how much you participate, however. Listen to what uh, Lawrence Richards and, and excuse me, Gib Martin say in their book. The title of their book is A Theology of Personal Ministry. A Theology of Personal Ministry. Interesting book. Here's what they say. I think this is, this is crucial for us. The key to effective ministry. The key to effective ministry is never found in its institutional setting. You understand what that means? It's never found in its institutional setting. The key to the success of the church is not found in the professional setting of the church. It's not found in the professional programming, the systems of the church, what we pay the professionals to do. It's never found in its institutional setting, but always in its relational setting. Whenever believers come to know and care for others and reach out to share, encourage, and help, there is a setting for the most significant ministries that can take place. Let me read that last part to you again. Whenever believers... And there's no, there's no qualification to that. Whenever believers, that's every one of us, any of us, whenever believers come to know and care for others, reach out and share, encourage and help, there is then a setting for the most significant ministries that can take place. The best things that come out of Cornerstone, in my estimation, are those things. When I brag about our church to uh, other ministers, other peers that I know, etc. When I start to talk about Cornerstone and people ask me, hey, what's going on at Cornerstone? What's happening there? How's it going, etc.? I never talk to them about numbers. I never talk to them about statistics. I never talk to them about uh, the new windows we put in this week. And we never talk about that kind of stuff. Here's what I talk about. I talk about you doing ministry. I never talk about the professional stuff. I never talk about our programs. I talk about you doing ministry. I talk about you loving each other. I talk about 
times where I've heard and I've seen that you are caring for each other. I talk about times where I've heard that you are rubbing off on other believers, that you've grabbed a younger believer in the faith and that you're pulling him up, Titus 2. I talk about the times where you are being truly successful in this discipleship game, in this loving God game, in this loving each other game, in this loving the world game. I talk about those things when I hear about you doing the work of the ministry. That's success. That we're accomplishing something. All right. Let's go on and talk about some of these principles that we can draw here. I've got ten of them, but I'm going to blow through them here, and uh, hopefully we'll be done on time, all right? Ten minutes. I've got ten things. Ten principles that we can draw from this few verses that we might tend to overlook, gloss over, and get on with the next book, get on with the next chapter in our reading to accomplish reading the whole Bible in one year sort of deal, okay? Don't miss some of this stuff because we learn some things about how Paul did ministry and how he accomplished that great, great calling of spreading the gospel to all the known world of his day. Taking the gospel, taking the good news, taking the light into the darkness to the Gentile world. He had a great start. Now, here's why. Principle number one, he knew some things. He knew that every member is responsible to engage in good deeds. Have you noticed that phrase reoccurring throughout the book of Titus? It has been a reoccurring theme. Good deeds, good deeds, good deeds. In 1 verse 16, he denounces the false teachers who were detestable and disobedient and worthless for any what? Good deed. In chapter 2, verse 7, he exhorts Titus to be an example of what? Good deeds. In 2.14, he says that Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. In 3.1, he tells Titus to remind the believers to be ready for every good deed. In 3.5, he clarifies that we are not saved on the basis of what? Good deeds, but three eight he again emphasizes that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Now again here in chapter three, verse fourteen, he repeats one last time that Christians must learn to take the lead in good deeds. You don't get the impression that good deeds are an option to the Apostle Paul. Amen? They're not an extra that you may want to consider in your spare time spirituality. If you're a Christian, you must be zealous for good deeds. Seven times in this short letter, Paul mentions that we are to be about good deeds. All right, number two. Paul also knows that we are interdependent as a body of Christ. We are interdependent, not independent. Make sure you catch this. We are interdependent as a body of Christ. And here's what this means. Although Paul was an extremely gifted man, he still needed others. It wasn't just a one-way street where the Christians needed Paul. Paul needed Titus. He needed him badly enough that he asked him to leave the work on Crete and spend the winter with him in Nicopolis. Um, Think about your own body. You may argue that your brain and your heart are the most important Important organs in your body, but they can't function without your nervous system, your blood vessels, and just about every other organ in your body. An untreated cut on your little toe can put you down, can stop your heart and your brain. 
if goes untreated. We are interdependent as a body of Christ. God made us this way intentionally. He created us to need each other. And that's the way it works, and we can't be successful otherwise. Paul knew this. He was successful at his calling because he knew this. Number three, he also knew that we must involve others in ministry and trust them to do it. This one's hard, especially for those of us who are in professional ministry. Uh, We often uh, get tricked into thinking because we do get paid to do this job. We are supported by the body to do it on a regular basis. We are duped into believing that uh, we are to accomplish it all on our own sometimes. But Paul knew, and we must learn, that we must involve others in ministry and trust them to do it. Uh, If you've worked with people at all, uh, especially in the church, you'll know that this is easier said than done. D.L. Moody used to joke, he said, the best committee is a committee of three. And he said it works best when one guy is sick and one guy can't show up. But if you're involved in leadership at any level, you don't get and you don't get others involved, you're not multiplying your efforts. And you're going to sell yourself short. You will eventually burn out and limit your effectiveness. We must involve others in ministry. Paul recruited and trained Titus. I mean, Titus wouldn't be on the island of Crete if it wasn't for the Apostle Paul training him up, sending him off, trusting him with the task, giving him what he needed, giving him instruction, sending guys to help him, encouraging him along the way. You wouldn't have this letter, you see. Paul knew exactly that he needed other men and he needed to encourage them, raise them up, and send them out and trust them with the work. They had to be faithful men. They had to meet the qualifications. He couldn't just send any Joe off the street. But when he found a guy who proved himself capable and worthy, a man of integrity, he would send him out and he would trust him. All right. Number four, we must promote others' ministries. You see how Paul does this? Quite often in his letters, he promoted other ministries. Paul promoted the ministries of others uh, almost in every letter. Here, he implicitly promotes the ministries of Artemis and Tychicus by sending them out. He encourages Titus to help Zenos and Apollos. When the church in Corinth formed into factions and you had some people saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. Do you remember when Paul mentions Apollos in that context? Paul doesn't blow up and say, listen, uh, don't worry about Apollos. You need to focus on my ministry. For Paul, it was bigger than that. He says, listen, it's not just about me or about Apollos. In the context, he puts himself on the same level. Even in his argument there, he doesn't say that he is above any of the other men that are mentioned there, Apollos being one of them. He says, in fact, that above all of us, Christ should be glorified. We should name the name of Christ before any other human name. Paul was willing to put Apollos on the same level as himself and to encourage others to benefit from Apollos' ministry. This is an important principle of ministry. And let me just say, it's not easy, okay? Our humanity does not make it easy. Always find ways to promote your teammates and help them to succeed. Promote your teammates and help them to succeed. Number five, every team needs godly leadership. Every team needs godly leadership. Of course, the Apostle Paul was in the supreme example of leadership after Christ himself in Scripture. But Paul succeeded as a leader because he raised up other men to lead these churches. You see that? He was successful because he successfully raised up other men that he multiplied himself in. And they were successful. 
On the local church level, leadership should be shared among a plurality of elders, but it is inevitable that on every leadership team there will be a leader among the leaders. Peter was this. Remember Peter? Peter was obviously the leader among the twelve apostles, although they were all leaders. But one of the main jobs of local church leaders is to work on raising up new leaders. And so next week when we bring up your elders and we publicly ordain them, they are to know that one of their primary responsibilities is to multiply themselves. One of my primary responsibilities is to find men who I can multiply myself in so that one day, just like we went out and started this brand new church, one day God will bless us, give us a guy, we can raise him up and send him out and start another church, whether it's across town or across the state or across the country or across the world. We are to be multiplying ourselves. Our elders, our leaders are to be multiplying themselves. It can't terminate on us. Peter did this. Paul did this. The health of the local churches is directly proportionate. Directly proportionate to the godliness and competence of leaders who multiply themselves. Number six. A leader must be a servant leader. We can't have prima donna leaders that aren't willing to get their hands dirty. If you're going to lead, you have to be willing to serve. Paul knew this, and you see it over and over in his life. Even when it came down to Paul making a living, he was willing to go out and supply his needs in other ways. Here in this passage, he's concerned that the churches in Crete help Zenos and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. He also emphasizes the need for churches to engage in good deeds and meet the needs of others. Of course, Paul set this example. He was always demonstrating by his own example what it means to serve others. To have a successful team, the leaders have to be successful in serving themselves. There to be a model. There to be a model. Number seven, a team needs to spend time together to function well. Paul had some of the team members with him as he wrote to Titus. Probably he and Titus would not be the only ones spending the winter in Nicopolis. All right? It was probably for ongoing leadership training. He was probably going to have Timothy there as well. Paul was pouring into these men for the next generation. Perhaps they spent the winter talking about biblical issues, issues and about ministry, about preaching, about praying, about where they would go next, where Titus would go, where Timothy would go. A team needs to spend time together to function well. Incidentally, at the end of July, your elders and your staff are going to be going away, and uh, we're going to be doing exactly this. Once a year, we've committed not not for the sake of having a vacation from you. But your leaders are going to go away, get on their knees together, get their heads together and say, where is our church going? Where does God want our church to go? We have to have, just like Paul models here, we see him inferring here, that, that, that men have to come together and ask God, where are we going? Where are we going? Our church has to be about this. All right? Number eight. A team leader needs to instill a vision for the world. A team leader needs to be able to instill a vision for the world. Paul was, Paul was excellent at this. With such a simple thing as exchanging greetings between those who were with Paul and those who were in Crete, Paul was letting believers in Crete know you're not alone. The church is bigger than just you there on the island of Crete. You who are struggling 
to make it by, you're not on your own. By doing this, by sending just this salutation, this encouragement, Paul helped them to raise their eyes, to not focus on their own struggles, not focus on their own difficulties, not focus on their own oppression, but to see that the message was going out. And Paul was a master of spreading a vision for the world. He always had his sights on those who had not yet heard, and he imparted his vision for the world to others. Paul said to the church at Rome that he wanted to come and visit them. And you remember what he said? After he visited them, he wanted to go where? To Spain. He never made it to Spain, by the way. But the heart of Paul was always to push the boundaries. The heart of Paul was always to push the darkness back as far as he could. He had ambitions. He had plans. He had goals. His heart was for the gospel, for the calling that was upon his life to get it out there. Paul had a plan, and he was able to instill it in those around him, this vision for the world. We're not being Christ-like if we, all, if we isolate ourselves from the world. Is that you? Let me read that again. We're not being Christ-like if we isolate ourselves from the world. We must always keep our vision on the Great Commission and those who have not yet heard of Christ. Big picture stuff. Kingdom stuff. Not material things. Not temporal things things. Number nine, a team leader needs to model living by faith. He needs to model living by faith. God works through our faith. There's no area that requires more faith than that of financial support. While Paul was very open about mentioning the financial needs of others, such as Zenos and Apollos and the needy saints of Jerusalem, as mentioned in 2 Corinthians, you never once find him mentioning his needs above the needs of others. He was a model of living his life by faith. He could have written to Titus something like this. Before you come, I must tell you that if the saints in Crete do not give generously to my needs, they will have to curtail the efforts. The ministry will be lost to thousands of people who will not hear the gospel. He could have wrote it in colored ink. He could have made it bold. He could have bracketed it. He could have put his needs out there. He could have uh, sold his own ministry to the body of Christ for support's sake, they didn't do it. Why? Because he was a model of living by faith. He was a model of living by faith. All right, let me give you the last one here. Team leader needs to promote and live by God's grace. The final words of the Apostle Paul. The final words of the Apostle Paul. Grace be with you all. Paul closes all his letters with some mention of God's grace. But it wasn't just a polite formality for Paul. Do you understand that? It, it wasn't just something Paul said. Like, bless you, or hey, have a great day. Or even, I'll be praying for you. Things sometimes we just say. Paul didn't just, didn't just throw around grace. Grace meant something to Paul. It's what from Titus verse 1, chapter 1, it's what motivated him in life. And he ends with it here. This thing of grace was important to Paul. God's grace motivated Paul to suffer hardship, persecution for the sake of the gospel. It motivated him to serve Christ with unstoppable zeal. God's grace, as shown at the cross, was Paul's only message. If anyone perverted the grace of God, Paul called down anathemas on him. If any church turned from God's grace to a system of works, Paul rebuked it 
in the name of the Lord and used very strong words to do so. God's grace was sufficient to sustain Paul in trials and keep him from exalting himself on the count of his rare vision of heaven that he had experienced, according to 2 Corinthians. Paul's entire theology, all of his doctrine, everything about him, his gospel can be summed up in that one word, grace. It wasn't just a trite saying for the Apostle Paul. This is what, it, this is what motivated him. This is what caused him to do what he did. This is what caused him to abandon his life even to the point of execution for the sake of the grace which God had shed for him. All right. Um, let's stick with this analogy of a team for just a moment and I'll close. There are some of us who, um, well, at best, we, uh, we dabble at serving the Lord. I mean, it's a, it's a part-time thing for us. It's an every now and then sort of thing for us. That the, 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 the ministry of the kingdom, it's, it's these guys' job. It's, it's someone else's job. From time to time, when I have time, when there's nothing else calling or beckoning for my attention, when I don't have problems going on in life, when everything's going okay, everything's going smooth, and I, and I, can, and I can do it, then the ministry is something I'll share in. We understand from, from the Apostle Paul in, in just these few short verses that Paul depended on everyone who named the name of Christ to be successful at his calling. He depended on those who were around him so that the kingdom would be successful. He expected them to do their part. He expected them to find their place. Now, two questions as we close. Number one, do you know that you're on the team, first of all? And I hate to say it that way because I feel like it trivializes the importance of the question. Because the true question, the serious question is, are you born again? Will you spend eternity in heaven or will you spend eternity in hell? That's what we mean by, are you on the team even? Okay? So that's the first question you have to ask. When I stand before God... Is he going to recognize me as being a team member in this sense? Or is he not going to recognize me? Is Jesus going to step up and say, you know what? This guy repented of all his sins and he placed his faith in what I did on the cross for all the sins he had previously committed. And he lived his life as best he could in faith because he loves me. I, I recognize this guy. He's part of the team. He's with me. Is Christ going to do that? Or when you get there... God's going to say, hey, listen, depart from me. I never, I never knew you. I never knew you to be one of us. No matter all the good you think you've done, I never knew you to be on this team. So that's question one. Question two is, for those of you who know you're on the team, how's the game going? Are you playing on the bench or are you on the field? Okay. Or, how much time are you spending on the sideline as opposed to how much time you're spending on the field? Are you watching the game? Are you watching those who are playing the game? Are you watching those who are sweating? Are you watching those who are taking the hits? Are you watching those guys who are, who are running with all they've got? Or are you in there doing it yourself? Are you, are you bench warmers? Or are you first string players? Think about it like this. 
Would you have been mentioned as one of Paul's cohorts in a letter like this? Would your life for Christ, would it have been noteworthy enough for the Apostle Paul that he would have mentioned you in one of his letters? Man, I hope my life would be. I I hope he would have supported me in the way he did some of these. I pray he would have recognized my abandonment for Christ, that he would have said to other believers, hey, when this guy comes around, take care of him as best as you can. Help him in this way. Let him help you in this way. How about you? I I, I hope that in the final evaluation of my life that someone like Paul would have thought my life noteworthy for the sake of Christ. All right. Let's pray. We'll be done.